we've identified criticism as the term that is lacking in, in definition that is kind of the empty term. And Guillory actually thinks that the entire discipline of literary study is lacking consensus on its object. So he thinks that criticism is a clearly defined practice that you can look at it historically and that you can understand it as a specific mode that comes out of a particular tradition of engaging with literary works and has attained a particular prominence in the English department as an institutional form. Fine. But he thinks that one of the big problems of our profession is that we don't know what the heck we're looking at. And I think that is just doesn't matter. Like, I really don't care what literature is. And maybe that's because I like also, you know, write about neurology textbooks from 1903, but like, pff, like, I, I just don't care. <laughs> like, I know, and I know, Sharon, you have said in the past that you are concerned with making a particular claim for the literariness of some of your objects of study. Yes, but that's um, a me problem. That's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Mm. According to Gilmer, it's a it's an yeah, What I mean is like, a that's a me problem, and b again, I want to revisit what is the literary in when I'm teaching my students. Yes, that's a thing of training, but at the same time, if I say I'll read a and not b, what does that achieve? Like in the sense of like, you know, what is b doing there? You're already naming it. Cannot, but you're, it's canonizing, right? That's the, that's the work of the canon, which is, of course, Guillory's most famous work. I think, Matt, I mean, this has gone over one hour. Right. But, I mean, I, I do want to say that, I mean, object of literary study and literary canon, they are different processes. In, oh, God, what's his name? Macaulay said all of Asian and literature would fit into one shelf. He was defining the canon, which is like, you know, he was saying that European literature is the canon, but he wasn't saying that Asian literature isn't an object of study. One way of reading this moment is that decanonization has happened, right? That it has been successful. We can certainly talk about whether that is in fact true, right? But that, that seems to be one interpretation of where we are. And so the question has then arisen, what comes in to bind literary studies together. I love the polyphony. I love the fact that we can call damn near anything literary study. It can be interdisciplinary work. It can be rhetorical analysis of, like you said, textbooks and neurology or economics or whatever. It can take film and television and radio as its textual object. It can use all sorts of methods, whether that's close reading or distance reading or so on and so forth, right? Like that excites me to no end, knowing that we have this sort of discipline in which the rules don't seem to exist. But I will acknowledge that for a lot of people, including university administrators, that absence of a sort of clear set of prerogatives, priorities is a weakness. And that one of the things that, you know, that is frequently asked of us 
is to define what it is that literary studies does. What are those objectives? If it is not the reproduction of the canon and telling the world transhistorically, this is the best that has been thought and said. If that's not what we do, then what do we do? Actually, what's substituted for the canon is war. We have replaced the canon with the wars, right? With first the canon wars and then the method wars. That's great. Fine. Like that is actually now the object of literary studies. The thing that binds it together is our conflict. Now, I have certainly other people on the podcast, notably Christopher Newfield, who has said, no, that's terrible. That's going to get us into all sorts of institutional structural problems. It's a problem of resources. It disguises all sorts of politics. Like that's a disaster if that's going to be the thing that we substitute for the canon. So I'm curious, how do you sort of reconcile the absence at the center of the discipline of literary studies? of an agreement about what it is, our shared, not just object, although I think that is the way it's most commonly described, right? But just like, what is the thing that makes us all part of the same discipline, right? Like, what is the thing that brings us together? Um, This is an unanswerable question. I do not have an answer to this question. Again, these are huge questions, which is like, perhaps, um, you know, not on me to answer. But I do think that we come together less in terms of what we are reading than how we are reading. You know, I think the will to critique brings us together. The fact that we can recognize the joys and pleasures of that process. Patient, sustained, and incisive analysis is something that is there in what we do. and. It is a transferable skill. It's definitely a portable skill. Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. This is the final episode of Criticism Limited, a series which I began working on in February. As Kim Adams and Sharon Ekbasu, the co-producers of High Theory, note in the segment you just heard, the series has been built around big questions, perhaps unanswerable ones, about the current state of literary studies and its potential futures. But also on the premise that to respond to universally recognized crises of material resources, as well as disputed diagnoses of interrelated crises of method, requires a collective inhabiting of the uncertainty and the urgency which big unanswerable questions produce. If you've been with us since July, you've heard from more than 50 voices, from graduate students and early career scholars to endowed chairs and professors emeritus, affiliated with dozens of fields, departments, methodological specializations, and types of institutions. Collectively, this group has published hundreds of books and articles and produced hundreds more video essays, podcasts, blog posts, and other multimedia criticism. Nevertheless, they still represent only a cross-section of those professionally interested in literary criticism. I hope you will see my oversights and lacunae as invitations to continue the conversation 
Well, this series is coming to an end. I have much more to say and many more questions to ask about the topics it has surveyed. And the American Vandal will remain my favorite venue for pursuing future projects of that sort. Stay tuned after the episode for a preview of what to expect on this feed in the near future. As I've said before, Criticism Limited never had the ambition of discovering a panacea, of advocating for a single direction literary studies should take to address all our multifaceted crises nested in the polycrisis of too late capitalism. That said, as I think I've probably already made clear, I'm very partial to the argument made by Jed Esty in The Future of Decline. And I have already begun experimenting with what it might mean to teach and serve my institution with the express goal of not just preparing for, but welcoming the end of American supremacy. This episode places Jed's argument at the center. And so I thought it best to begin with a little refresher. About half of my interview with Jed appeared in the first half of this series, primarily in episode three, Ponzi Austerity in the Age of Cultural Abundance. I certainly encourage you to listen to it in full if you have not already. But even if you have, it was released more than three months ago. So I'm going to open with a condensed six-minute version, which starts with Jed defining his key term, declinism, and then explaining what that might mean for literary studies. It is the product of basically four types of discourse, economists, political scientists, historians, and journalists. And people who do cultural studies, especially literary studies, are not in the conversation very much. And the, the conversation as a whole, which I took it upon myself to diagnose like a literary critic, has this governing contradiction, which is a mainstream reader or audience member of American media over the last 15 years since the 2008 crisis might be led to believe two contradictory things. One is that America is still the most powerful country in the world in every significant and important way, hard and soft power, and will be for the foreseeable future. And the other is that America is in the grips of a very profound crisis, has maybe already gone over the cliff without realizing it. And that is a doubly false and I think doubly destructive narrative, that version of declinism. It's so pervasive as a structuring narrative of American institutions and particularly of higher education since the heyday of the post-World War II moment. And for our generation, it's been a, a kind of constant sense of struggling with the decline of higher ed and with the decline of the humanities within higher ed. It is in some way the air we breathe, the prose we speak, the currency we swim in. But there's another way that's important to us, which is we have absolutely failed to seize on an important public function for criticism and critical thinking itself, even though we say those words all the time in our attempt to explain, justify, and describe what we do. And that is that declinism and decline narratives are completely organized by and governed by brute economic conditions on the one hand, and this is the paradox of it, and yet they float quite free from it on the other hand, meaning that what people believe about the state of social decline and economic decline in America is way more powerful than what is actually true. And the British example that I draw on in the book bears that out too, which is to say there's a real floating non-correlation between narratives of decline and the facts of decline. And that's where we come in. We tack back and forth between real historical and social and economic facts on the one hand, and the 
powerful fantasy structures that we use to shape those facts on the other. The lost alliance between the liberal and the left sectors of the American political landscape, which I think is re-represented in the lost connection between academic thinking and journalistic thinking, has partly to do with the fact that the, the liberal center understands how utterly failed the mission of developing a mythology of the left or of the liberal center has been relative to the incredibly lurid, vivid, potent mythologies of the right in America. And this is the particular point of intervention for me to look back at the moment when British university intellectuals were confronting an obvious wall-to-wall problem of national decline and shrunken estate in the immediate post-war years. And there was a kind of intellectual efflorescence around decline, which we know familiarly inside our discipline as the rise of the new left, which I reread in this short book as a call to arms for us. Stuart Hall, one of the leaders of that movement, observed that working in middle class people in Britain as they rose into literacy and political activism around the turn of the 19th century, we're not already sold on the idea that Britain's defining mission was an imperial one. And there was a real process of cultural recruitment through popular culture, through middle-brow culture, through the universities, of pulling people into the mission of empire. My contention is that that happened in America too, between 1920 and 1970. Hall's contention is that if people could be taught to rally around the imperial mission, they could also be taught to stop rallying around it. That if that was an active intellectual project, its opposite could become an active intellectual project. I want to propose the same thing for us as a call to arms for people working in the humanities, living through the post-2008 moment, living through the arc of crisis that America is in now, living through the fact that in, in this next generation of students, they will grow up in a world where India and China are bigger economies than the American one. And that's not going to reverse itself. These mega trends are happening. And I think American intellectual structures can respond. We have a mission now to try to think about rewiring a sense of national purpose and a sense of national destiny, rewiring the notion that what greatness is has to do with producing a functional society, not a world hegemon. As long as America's understood public mission and destiny is to maintain its hegemony, then we live in an austerity model almost all the time. America being number one at everything keeps constant economic pressure on the idea that we have to grind out the most disadvantageous labor relations possible, that we have to sacrifice all environmental regulation in order to compete with all these other rising global economies. We can't, and we don't, and we shouldn't. (laughs) And we can have a better, cleaner, more functional, more just society once we let go of that grand rhetorical headline that America is the greatest and that the only way to be American is to invest all your political capital and all your aspirations in always being on top. When we start acknowledging that we will become number two and then number three, that it's an inevitability of capitalism's form, Mm -hmm. something will relax something will be forced on the intellectual life of America from the outside. The material changes around us will start to percolate through the system. And I believe that it's possible to unlearn supremacy, and there I mean both national and white, as it was possible to learn supremacy, and there I mean both national and white. 
that progressive thesis, that we might be able to change the future by studying the past, is a fraught one, as Jedwell knows. Mark Twain summed it up nicely when he told a childhood friend, as to the past, there is but one good thing about it, and that is that it is in the past. We don't have to see it again. There is nothing in it worth pickling for present or future use. But even as Twain was saying this, he was composing the first of a series of historical fictions, which used bygone eras, Jacksonian America, Tudor England, medieval Europe, to explain and sometimes allegorize issues of the present. What some might dismiss as a naively utilitarian historicism is also present in Bruce Robbins's criticism in politics. And like Jed, he turns to Stuart Hall for inspiration. Where your book ends, that is with a notion of progress mm-hmm. and, and with an acknowledgement that the word progress has been a dirty word frequently both in the academy, in the sort of profession of criticism and literary studies, and maybe in the culture at large, but it may no longer be. And in fact, I think if we look back across American history, one way of of seeing a a kind of connection to Twain's time, being a progressive is something that's okay to be, is a word that has a positive connotation. Mm -hmm. And other periods, it does not. And that the associated myths or teleologies of progress are also rising and falling in their status over that time. Maybe our denial of the possibility of progress or our denial of the legitimacy of progressivism is something that might be fading away and also be creating a more permissiveness towards thinking about criticism doing work for the political good. Yeah, I'll just note in passing that I saw you did a podcast with Jed Esty. Mm-hmm. I thought his critique of the sort of very lazy decline narratives yes. out there is a very valuable thing and more power to him. We'll be hearing from him in this series. And yes, I, I think that book was really spot on. Yeah. 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 No, me too. About how my book ends. So it ends with Stuart Hall. And I don't know whether this works for people, but it was very impressive to me. And I'm picking up a little bit on what we were talking about before, about independence and collectivity and belonging. It seems to me that Stuart Hall could accept the idea of progress in a way that most of the people around him or a lot of the people who are more entirely or consistently academic, and that's not the way he thought of himself, I think, ever, even though he had academic jobs. He thought of himself as belonging to a movement. And if you think of yourself as belonging to a movement, of course you're in favor of progress. You don't necessarily think, looking at the world, that you've seen a lot of it or enough of it. But the point of doing what you're doing is to create progress. And Stuart Hall was pretty clear about that. He didn't think that Maggie Thatcher was an example of progress, right? I mean, at one of the great critiques of authoritarian populism, But when asked about it, he he said, that's the thing that I quote, yeah, of course. I sort of dangle Stuart Hall in front of people to say, look, don't you agree with that? Why are you doing what you're doing if you don't agree with Stuart Hall that the point is to make things better? Now, of course, I go further than that, and I think so would Stuart Hall, although I I didn't try to 
make the case that it it seems likely that if you are enough of a believer in progress to try to make some, you will look back at the past and see that other people have successfully made some. It would be very strange if everybody who ever tried to make progress in the past had failed, if that was just the understood principle of history. Failure, 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 failure. There is nothing but failure. You know, we stand on the shoulders of failures. If you look, you can find some things that at least I would call, to some extent, progress, successes. Never satisfactory. And in a time of climate change, among other things, and so much what we think of as vestigial racism, but racism which clearly hasn't gone away, violence against Black people that has not gone away. You always sound smarter if you say things are really bad. Mm -hmm. And I've had to get used to the idea of sounding like the dumbest person in the room if I ever want to say, well, yeah, they're really bad. There's no question. Look around. They're terrible. But in this respect, in that respect, maybe there's been a little progress and we can take some comfort from this. I realize that there are isms that can be attached to that position and that would make me not worth reading or listening to. I guess I'm willing to take the risk of saying, okay, it's what I think. I don't think there's any disabling labeling that will fall on my head because I say that. And, and Stuart Hall, because he was you know, such a progressive down to his dying day, helps me feel encouraged that I, I don't have to worry about that. Although perhaps I do, I don't know. Let's return to Jed, who explains in greater detail what the British example might mean for an American politics of decline. The analogy that you admit has its limits between the path of Britain in the American century and the presumptive path of America in the Chinese century or the Indian century or whatever the next. The know, Asian century. Yeah, yeah, the Asian century. That there are limitations to that analogy, but it is a valuable one for us to explore anyway. And one of the things you note is perhaps gloriously, the decline of national supremacy and white supremacy is to some extent inevitable, but that doesn't mean it won't be fraught by backlash, by white lash. Yes. And, and obviously that was something that characterized the British experience as well. And how do we combat that? Of the many things that cause me angst these days, it is that I don't think we have fully experienced the backlash of that sort of right ring recognition that first place is going to be denied to us regardless of what path we take. And how do you see the lessons we can learn from the British experience? That's a great question. And that's one of the nuances of the book that I think I have failed to transmit in my small forays into more mainstream media, because it seems like I'm saying, okay, the British example is fascinating. The British response to decline is important. It's important for people on the cultural left to think about it's striking because when, when Stuart Hall started analyzing national decline, it was a police black conflict crisis in Britain in the 1970s. When Perry Anderson started analyzing, it was striking because it's a series of more or less technocratic university disciplines that don't understand the history of capitalism the way that you and I would understand it and focus on hypothesizing, repeating the heroic tale of the liberal individual as the maker of world destiny 
it's striking because Raymond Williams was diagnosing wars over culture and culture, cultural value all, all at the same time in the 1960s and 70s. And this is why I center the book on a kind of Britain is a model for America. The British New Left should be a model for American academics now. Double-barreled argument. But you're asking me, you're engaging me at the macro level, which is where the paradox enters in, which is so much about what has gone on in post-crisis America the last 15 years, the, the 2008 through Trump moment, does look like the kinds of white lash and backlash that Britain in its profoundly hobbled politics failed in incomplete political modernization mm -hmm. since the loss of the empire has continued to suffer through making it yeah. to some degree a kind of spectacle to the American and European yeah. media, a spectacle of political failure yeah. and of political backwardness. Yeah. Brexit is just absolutely that. Right? Absolutely. They're still, so, they're still dealing with that angst in 2015. I mean, there's so much to say now, yeah. Matt, about where we are at this moment with the coronation of King Charles yeah. and the moment of succession on American TV. And, and, I, and I have thoughts about that too. But in particular, what I want to say that ties together parts of our conversation is that Britain is a model because ex-superpower nostalgia is an extremely toxic and potent political force. And it has been marshaled by conservative forces in Britain for generations. Mm -hmm. It is currently being marshaled and has been marshaled from Reagan to Trump very powerfully in America. And, and as you say, it will continue to be. And it's indeseverable from White Lash, but that's only one of its faces, mm -hmm. one of its least palatable faces. But there are the facts that Britain can be a negative example of that way. It can also serve as a negative example in a different sense, which is to say American culture and society are completely differently organized in American politics from British politics. So much less traditionalist and so much less woven into national identity is the problem of empire or the problem of global supremacy and global hegemony. And we are a much more brawling, diverse, immigrant-driven, multiracial democracy than Britain has traditionally been. And Britain is a very diverse society now, but it's not the same kind of structure. And we're so much bigger and so much better positioned economically to absorb the fall from number one to number two to number three that is upon us than Britain was in the mid-20th century. On the positive side of the story that rarely gets told to Americans is that for most people in Britain in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the welfare state actually did a great job of improving the lives of non-elites. One of the messages I'm here to deliver is that American declinism is a conservative rhetoric, unfortunately given aid by most centrist or mainstream liberals. Mm -hmm. And it is an elitist discourse of loss about propertied, mostly white propertied, upper middle class people. And that was true in Britain as well. Unfortunately, it has real populist appeal because it appeals to this notion of greatness. Now, there's two quick things I'll say to give you some sense that there's something more than hope in my book. One is the architects of American Cold War power were largely technocratic rather than aristocratic. And I do think the power of technocratic thinking is what has begun to destroy and erode the university's balance among the disciplines and among the models of the world and among the political voices. Even in the left and liberal senses, I think there's too much technocratic thinking and not enough understanding of the limits of a purely rationalist, econometric way of thinking. But I think it's a lot easier to unseat technocratic thinking than it is to unseat aristocratic privilege. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that we have going for us. In addition to being a 
much broader and more brawling multiracial democracy than Britain was and a much better resource country. So I guess that's actually three things. And a fourth one is, you know, a lot of it's about timing. I think historical contingency is really important to bring into this conversation about our profession, our discipline and our country and our world. And climate crisis is a massive contingency that's different. I think it changes what the idea of the endless American frontier could possibly mean now. And that is the core mythology of American greatness. And it's being broken not just by Asian competition, but by the limit point of climate disaster. And the other piece of timing that's really important, is there enough generational change taking place around us, enough modernization of sex and gender norms, for example, or enough modernization of people living in most urban cores in America to diffuse more progressive ideas about American destiny than the ones that we get from the Biden-Trump generation. Mm -hmm. In other words, the boomers and their mythologies are going to die off ultimately. Mm -hmm. And they are the linchpin and the linking generation to this heroic concept of Cold War America as the most America that America ever was. And I don't think a lot of 20-year-olds, let alone 10-year-olds, are going to grow into political adulthood thinking that America can only be America when it's number one, because we simply won't be by the time they're tuning in and voting. I wondered, as you might, how Jed's argument looked to not just his fellow transatlantic modernist scholars, but to British subjects. So I asked Becky Carver what she thought about the book and also about the potential to extrapolate Jed's thesis into literary criticism. I don't know. I like to think that we did what Stuart Hall told us to do, but I'm not sure that it's true, really. I think most British people do think that they are superior. They just think that it's latent rather mm. than manifest. And were they given the opportunity, they would be back on top. I think most British people would say that there was a mismatch between their own sense of their greatness and world events, world history. <laughs> but I think that perhaps arises out of my bias as a Welsh person and profound hatred of the English. I think one thing that's problematic in the English case and maybe problematic for the argument of that book, which I read and love, it's gorgeously written, which is the thing I value most in criticism. <laughs> <laughs> But what seems problematic to me is that it doesn't attend very much to hereditary privilege, privilege that people think they're entitled to at birth, which has always been fundamental to British society. It's one of the reasons we have the royal family and they can't be gotten rid of. And however hard you, you try to persuade us to unlearn supremacy, as long as we have your royal family and as long as we believe that there are certain bloodlines that are infinitely valuable, then it's hard for us to believe, I think, probably, that we're quite as vulgar as you Americans might want to make us. So I'm not sure I accept the argument, but I do like the idea of scaling down and I was rereading Lawrence, the beginning of Lady Chatterley's Lover, where he says, this is a tragic age and we need not to be tragic. We, we need to enter this tragic moment, hopefully. 
which obviously is an idea he gets from Nietzsche, I think maybe the only way to coexist, hopefully, with a tragic moment is to be willing to accept what can't be changed about the world in an attitude that isn't desperate. Historicism allows something like looking at the British example and thinking about what the implications might be. Anna Kornbluth calls this slightly differently, something like strategic presentism, historicization with the present, fluidly with the past, with a kind of overt political aim. Those are definitely Jamesonian critics, but is there a crucial element of history that can be connected to this idea of the pleasure, the glee in the experience of criticism? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the key thing to take from the British example, isn't it part of your history? Do you need to see it as separate, really? I don't know that you do. New criticism is based on Emerson anyway. It's sort of a response to Emerson. Mm -hmm. You could say that Seven Types of Ambiguity is the first work of new criticism. In a way, it does care about biography and it does care about intention and all of these things that become taboo later. Why not see it all as part of the same history and say that the British example comes first and what happens next in America is an evolution. And if you think about it in those terms, and I think, I suppose this is a perverse thing to say, but I think that the important thing to take from the British example is that in our case, literary criticism has never been defensible. It's never had a defender who was really worth his salt. Levis's argument was full of holes. Raymond Williams shows Matthew Arnold being fairly grotesque in his politics. He was against suffrage for, for town folk. When the subject was first being introduced at Oxford and Cambridge at the beginning of the 20th century, no case could be made for it. No strong case could be made for it. So at the time, there was something called the extension movement. There was this guy called John Collins, who believed very strongly that Oxford and Cambridge should have an English degree. But Oxford and Cambridge were, were against this idea partly because anyone could do English, because anyone who's illiterate could read, anyone who's illiterate could talk about books. And so although there was huge appetites among readers for a degree in English literature, they were worried about being laughed at. They were worried about a devaluation of the degree. What happened was that John Collins attempted to demonstrate to them that were they to introduce a degree, there would be students who would produce brilliant papers and there would be students who would respond excitedly and do well and excel. And so by producing those students and as a result of the exam board, which was populated by Oxford and Cambridge Dons, it was as a result of the exam board seeing those papers that a defence of the subject could be made. And all along its career, it's been the case that it's enthusiasm that's kept the thing going. I love that. Yeah. Enthusiasm keeps the thing going. I certainly take your point. And this is, in fact, I think one of the fascinating dialectics in Twain's work is between his desperate desire at times to distinguish an American cultural tradition and also his, not satiric, but I think deeply sincere 
claim that all Americans are Brits. He sometimes jokes about the first Independence Day, everybody there celebrating independence was a British subject or had been. Acknowledging that Twain, Twain himself is torn even as he's being called the American sort of cultural origin point, as he is by Hemingway, that's not how he thinks of himself. He thinks of himself as very much in dialogue and paying homage to a British tradition. So I I absolutely take your point that these two things need not be, perhaps should not be separated from one another. They have been, and I will acknowledge in this series at least in some ways they have been. In particular, what I have heard from listeners is the frustration that I treated the new critics solely as an American phenomenon and that the sort of early 20th century formalism that we talked about early in the series was exclusively treated as something from the Vanderbilt School and that even if they were admiring of Eliot, Empson, that it was a kind of American phenomena within the academy. I read Eagleton's Critical Revolutionaries recently, and clearly one of the things that he argues is that what we might think of as the British examples of the new critics were not infected by conservative racist politics. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm curious to, to hear you talk more about that lineage and how it might change our understanding of the techniques of literary study to think of it through Emson, Richards, Liebes, as opposed to through Ransom, as we have done in this series. Thinking about it from a British perspective lets you emphasize the pedagogical dimension a little bit more. Richard's version of what you call new criticism started in lectures, and it started with reading Emson's poems in lectures, treating them as test cases. The lectures doing the equivalent of going viral for lectures, people would curl out of the door out of enthusiasm. Eliot would travel down from London just to catch Richard's lectures. What was going on there was what you would call new criticism live, texts treated as though they had no authors, practical criticism as the exercise of close reading without any awareness of context, without any awareness of historical context or an author. So it was already going on in their teaching. And you had some gorgeous sustained examples of it, like Mansfield Forbes had an eight-hour lecture series on a single Wordsworth sonnet that apparently was magically popular. Everyone would go. And he kept it running for years and years. It was legendary. And the only record we have of it is his annotations to the poem. And enthusiastic students, you know, like I said, it's enthusiasm that keeps this creature alive that we call literary criticism. And the first examples of literary criticism in British case of performances that people have gone wild about. And then people start to write up what they might say in a lecture. And one example is Seven Types of Ambiguity. But there are other kind of examples strewed around Eliot says, I think it's in his homage to Dryden, he says that the the best ambition for criticism should be that it articulate pleasure 
that should be what criticism does. So provide a kind of defense for pleasure, which he goes on to attempt to do in his homage to Dryden, which then becomes a type of new criticism in the sense that it's based on quotations. It's based on an attempt to capture the feeling of reading Dryden in the moment. He talks a lot about Dryden's surprises built into the rhythm, which was unique to Dryden. The new critics were accentuating something or maybe formalizing, maybe professionalizing something that had been present in the British case for a long time. But as far as they were concerned, there was the pitfall of the personal. And the problem with the personal in criticism, a major problem with the personal is that it's, again, one of these elements of our subject that we can't defend. You you can't demonstrate the existence of intention. You can't defend your interest in a dead person. You might be able to defend your interest in a living person, but why would you be interested in why Sylvia Plath killed herself? She's not your friend. And, and to get rid of that untidiness, the new critics decided that they were only going to be interested in texts. But that in itself is artificial because you know, why would they be choosing those texts in the first place if they hadn't been excited by them? And their own subjectivity is involved in a way that they can't eradicate. I'm going to take a step a little bit back in your answer to the wonderful description of the lecture hall as that space of enthusiasm and that the origin of a British literary critical tradition is in that space of collective interpretation, right? The performance Mm -hmm. of the professor or the instructor or the lecturer, but also in a space where they are playing off of presumably interacting with an audience. And I do think that is a kind of distinction from certainly the way the sort of Vanderbilt critics were thinking that the popular criticism that they wanted to professionalize was written. It was coming out of newspapers and magazines. Over the last few episodes, I've been emphasizing all these forms of literary criticism, which are more collective, which are more spontaneous, which involve voices oscillating in conversation. How do you think through the media transformations from the lecture hall into the academic monograph, the peer-reviewed essay, and then back maybe into places like conferences and symposia, various forms of academic dialogue. On the one hand, we are losing some aspect of professional pleasure, but also our professional urgency when we move away from the in-person events, right? Lecturers coming to campus, going to conferences. And I understand why we're losing some of these things. Some of it has to do with climate change and energy prices. And we're trying to replace it with things like podcasts and video conferencing. But there is a tension that exists within the series towards a celebration of new media as venues for criticism. And also an acknowledgement that something will be lost when we are not in the same rooms with one another trying to think through how to approach a book and sometimes arguing about it. Yeah, I think something like a podcast or something like Zoom, you're attempting to overcome the fact that you can't be in the same room, aren't you? You're not sitting by yourself just writing. As you were talking, I was thinking of Benjamin's essay on the storyteller, that idea of the solitary artist versus the person who is in dialogue with uh, his listeners, his audience, all of, all of the time and saw himself as their equal, which takes me back to another problem I have with the drive towards professionalism. I see myself as an equal of my students who sometimes know lots more than me about particular kinds of 
I suppose even types of writing, they're much better at thinking about pronouns than I am. And their visual literacy is much better than mine, much, much more advanced. So yeah, that idea of evenness is really important and goes out the window when you start to see criticism as professional and solid tree and po-face. Not that it need be po-faced just by virtue of being solitary. But yeah, I'm caricaturing slightly, aren't I? But on collectivity and how it might be shipped into writing, I was thinking a little bit about written lectures. And Eric Griffiths is a lecturer I remember from Cambridge who's just a wonderfully charismatic lecturer and teacher. And he's not written very much literary criticism, but what he has written is stunning. I don't know if you've read it, but it's just the most wonderful literary criticism and as inspiration for the Roland Barthes piece because I associate him with glee when he believes he's right about a close reading or something just exuberantly gleeful in his tone that carries across so well. Before we return to Jed, I want to revisit the hinge of this series. The two episodes on the Chicago fight. When I sat down to talk with Gerald Graff, I knew I needed to talk to him about Derrida's Limited Incorporated, one half of the inspiration for the title Criticism Limited, and about Professing Literature, one half of the inspiration for the title of John Guillory's Professing Criticism. What I had not recognized was that he could also take us even further back that he was on the University of Chicago campus as an undergraduate student in the late 50s when Chicago's economic imperialists started unwinding Robert Maynard Hutchins' Chicago plan. You had firsthand experience with the institution that I spent a lot of time talking about earlier in this series, the University of Chicago, and in the time that I focused on, which was starting in the early 1930s, so probably long before you were there, but ending in the late 50s and early 60s. And one of the arguments I made in those episodes was that there was a longtime president there, Robert Maynard Hutchins, who had a desire, what he called the Chicago Plan, the desire to maintain a broad general education curriculum and make effective teaching the priority for professionalization. While he was up against a consortium of faculty, primarily in the social sciences and led by an economist named Harry Gideons, who wanted hyper-specialization for faculty, for researchers, and vocationalism for students. And in the long run, both at Chicago and elsewhere, the Gideons faction won, I I think, by and large, although not necessarily in the humanities. And I think this is a sort of tension I've been trying to explore throughout the series is because of that sort of divide. And something that you have called patterned isolation emerges, right? Where on the one hand, we are being evaluated according to the research priorities, the specialization priorities that come out of the sciences and social sciences. And so humanities research, in order to dignify itself and fund itself, has to aspire to the kind of hyper-specialization, field-changing, field-defining research, particular niches, innovative styles, so on and so forth, that characterizes how the sciences and social sciences get funding. But of course, that is 
completely antithetical to the kind of broad liberal arts model that was the aspiration in the classroom. I would challenge some of that. Uh, What you say is fascinating to me because I've um, thought about this a lot myself. I have a chapter on uh, Gideon's and Tyson's in uh, Professing Literature, but I don't don't think I take on quite the, the issue that you're talking about. Yeah, it's true that the humanities have been measured by criteria that were established by the sciences. This was the bargain that we entered into to become a accredited department in the universities, that humanities would be kind of a science or would be able to meet rigorous objective criteria of measurement like the science. But it seems to me that once these attitudes became institutionalized, it became quite easy for the humanities to stretch the meaning of terms like research itself. It wasn't too long before the end of the 40s where creative writing became, it counted as research. Literary interpretation became research. And the term research was fudged. If I wrote about Wallace Stevens, or if I interpreted Wallace Stevens, or if I wrote poetry, that was my research. And that was, and I think we established that. Chicago played a role, right? That's John Crow Ransom's argument in Criticism, Inc., is that it's the Chicago critics who are professionalizing criticism first, right? And turning it into, adopting it to that research muzzle. Yeah. 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 Did you engage with those Chicago critics? Was that sort of part of your undergraduate education? Yes and no. I had a course with Elder Olson. And I had another course with Norman McLean, who later, of course, wrote the popular River Runs Through It, which is totally different prose from, and I made a point of this in my book, Lewis in Academe, that if I compared passages from A River Runs Through It with his academic criticism, which was totally ponderous, opaque, and unreadable. But I wasn't a Chicago critic. I had a hard time grasping what they were talking about, what they were after. I later became a great admirer of R.S. Crane, who I devote a lot of attention to in professing literature. Retrospectively, I think I understand what you're talking about, that they were pioneers. And you're right, of course, that Ransom pointed to them as having established a kind of professional paradigm that could establish criticism as a university specialty and move it away from just journalism or compete with literary journalism. Another point I was going to make, though, in relation to something you said, you talked about the specialized model of scholarship established by the social sciences and the sciences. But I've quarreled with that. It seems to me there's a sense in which academic literary criticism is specialized but it's misleading. I think where it specializes is mainly in the language that critics use, problematizing this and problematizing that. And this, again, connects with the kind of political move of criticism. We've become very unspecialized, if you think about it, in that you can hardly get a job, much less a grant, unless you claim that your work is going to change the paradigm, if not revolutionize the country. You know, The old-fashioned paradigm was very specialized. The passive voice in Old Icelandic would have been the coin of the realm around 1945, maybe not through 1955. And I think once the study of modern literature came in as a major field, which of course was resisted through all the pre-war period, but after the Second World War, modern literature, 20th century literature became a huge field, tied up with American literature too, which is kind of mixed in with that. 
I think the study of contemporary subjects really legitimated a kind of non-specialized or anti-specialized kind of work. And the terms of praise, I pointed this out, that publishers, when they advertise your book, they don't say, this book is wonderfully specialized. You know, here's a book that's going to wipe out all the existing paradigms for studying the subject. It's going to change the way we think about everything, not just academic subjects, but everything. I guess I'm raising questions about how we describe this change that we're talking about. I got my BA from there, and uh, I was there 56 to 59. And I think the problem with Chicago has always been John Dewey, you know. And, oh, and then, of course, the atomic bomb. We can't forget that. Is, it goes on and on. They were at the center of everything. But I think it went to their heads at some point that this was the great place, the great university, and so forth. And when you went there, you were constantly reminded of that. And the way you were reminded of it, at least for me, at least I always felt, this wasn't true of all the courses, but a, a lot of times in the English department, they made you feel that whatever you said, you weren't quite right. Not that you weren't right, but you weren't approaching things in the right way. They had all this stuff about methodology, of asking the right questions and so forth. And I always felt I could never quite impress them <laughs> And I got good grades, and I was a good student. But I always felt that I never quite impressed them as the top notch. And it shouldn't have bothered me, but it did. Years later, when I got an offer to go there as a faculty member, totally vindicated, I thought, wow, this is great. And I remember telling my friends, and I had already written professing literature. It was basically on the basis of professing literature that I got the, the offer from them to go back there. This was in 1991. And I remember telling friends that now that I'm going back to the University of Chicago, my pronouncements about teaching and education will become 50% truer because they'll have all that backing. Not only did that not turn out to be true because critics could now say well, he's one of these snobs from the University of Chicago. He only teaches genius students. What does he know about the nitty gritty of teaching? <laughs> Which wasn't true, but anyway, not only was it that, but when I went back there and talked with the faculty, I got the, the feeling they would say, Jerry, yeah, what you're saying is true. That's not quite, you're not asking the question, you know, it was the same. It was exactly the same as when I was an undergraduate. So, but I love the place, and I became a good friend with Wayne Booth, who was a terrific guy, and other great friends like Richard Stryer and Larry Rothfeld and others who are still there. So I'm so glad that I went there. Ambivalence, notwithstanding. Another scholar of Graf's generation who was friends with Wayne Booth is Deidre McClowski. She's durably associated with the University of Chicago as well, where she was an economics professor during the height of that department's institutional and international influence. Though, like Graf, she concluded her career at University of Illinois, Chicago. McCloskey is a libertarian economist, but also a serious scholar of literary history and rhetoric. She is somebody who succeeds equally in irritating economists and humanists. And I find it comical to imagine which team she might have played for in that softball game between the Aristotelians and the social scientists. Perhaps she would have been the umpire. She was my inspiration for this final question to Jed Esty. One of the scholars who most troubles me because 
I both find myself in considerable sympathy with her work and also frequently rejecting her politics is Deidre McClowski. One of the, the most sort of exciting moments in her work that is also deeply troubling and which I found you echoing in the future of decline is this idea that American living standards going down, or maybe more accurately, American superpower declining. The, the two don't necessarily have to be synonymous, although they have been so far. But a redistribution of capital could mean that's not the case, right? But American superpower in decline is also, at least so far, correlated to rising living standards globally. Mm -hmm. And so this sense of decline that, that might follow from the 1970s to the present, from 2008 to the present, from 2001, however you want to mark it, has also seen worldwide food precarity and also some other measures of global poverty rapidly declining. I think this is one of the really interesting theses that you present in the book, right, is that, that we have to become comfortable with the idea that America getting worse could also be the world getting better. And I think that's so hard for people to wrap their minds around, that the shrinking American middle class might be coming at a cost of rising living standards in the global south. And, okay, so you think that's strategically risky to speak that truth, or you think it's untrue? So it's two things. I do think it's strategically risky to speak that truth. The second part is, for somebody like McClowski, the lesson she takes from that is a kind of libertarian one, that this is the kind of opening up of markets that creates enormous amounts of wealth for very few in, in America, but is also creating this sort of Reagan-esque rising tide lifts all boats, right? If we look beyond the borders, right, the, the tide is rising and the boats are rising. It's just that a, a huge proportion of the American middle class and working class are already above that tide and so don't recognize it as right. I see. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't thought of framing it exactly through that McCloskey argument. And I certainly see my purpose here as to argue for the return of a highly regulative welfare state as against free market fundamentalism or yeah. any kind of deregulative yeah. impulse. And in fact, I think the most salient fact of all outside climate mm -hmm. is the way wealth and equity stacks up in the two former Anglo superpowers that are the center of our discursive community and that are the horizon of our discipline. Mm -hmm. And they are way out of whack, even with Europe, let alone with other parts of the world. And there's, I think, a direct relationship between that kind of austerity slash greatness dyad that we talked about earlier and the possibility in American politics of thinking really seriously about addressing wealth and equity as the fundamental problem of economics. There's so much power and wealth concentrated in the lobby that keeps us still believing, even though none of us who have a clue believe in it, in the Washington consensus that the market is a solution to almost everything. And to bring it back to the thing that you and I have in, in common in our interest in Keynes, I mean, I think that the, the major story I have to tell as a student of the history of narrative and the history of culture and the history of national mythologies 
is a very anti-McCloskey one, which is that the problem with our Anglophilic discipline and our Anglophilic popular culture is that the baton passed from British to American power, everything that Twain was observing in his lifetime and that carried through to the moment of Bretton Woods and that Keynes was observing from the opposite side, tells me that a kind of 19th century liberal model of anti-state heroism, of individual action to solve social problems, of anti-collective thinking, a weak state mythology that is an anti-Keynesian mythology is completely embedded in our popular culture. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see because it's mediated, it's disguised, and all of our heroic narratives, including superhero narratives and Sherlock Holmes narratives, are about the charisma of the individual actor filling in the space where the state fails. Mm -hmm. And this was really crystallized for me by reading Pankaj Mishra, who writes about rising Asia and Western decline a lot. And I think he's really right about this. I think what we have to contribute to the story about declinism is flipping the question that you started with, which is what does declinism have to tell us about our predicament? What we have to say about that predicament is those residual and sticky narratives of anti-state mythology, the whole kind of PR wing of 19th century Victorian liberalism stuck around in American culture for generations mm -hmm. and paved the way for the monetarist revolution, paved the way for the revolt against Keynes. And I think we can detox on those now, mm -hmm. finally. I, I think in other words, to put it a slightly different way, Matt, I think that the, the frontier mythology and the toxic individualist heroic narrative that made it so hard for the welfare state to stick around for longer than two generations is now running out of its historical legs and its material conditions of possibility because of climate change, because of the kind of collapse of the 90s Washington consensus that's our immediate political and economic horizon. I think our cultural narratives are ready to change. For just a few minutes here, at the close of Criticism Limited, I'm going to speak to you not as a Twain scholar, a literary critic, or a podcast host, but as a scholar of the history of economic thought. Earlier this season, particularly in episode four, I covered the ongoing Ponzi austerity death spiral at West Virginia University. I suspect for many listeners, this has continued to be a backdrop to this series. Anthony Ballas made it explicit in an article for Truth Out last month, in which he used the first half of Criticism Limited as a theory for explaining how the reorganization of West Virginia's flagship institution reveals the right-wing agenda for higher education. I'm in broad agreement with Mr. Ballas's analysis, but I want to draw attention to two underreported elements of the ongoing debacle in Morgantown, which I think reveal the urgency of the mission Jed proposes for us. First, in late September, West Virginia fired eight faculty from the Chambers College of Business and Economics, entirely outside the already accelerated and opaque restructuring process that eliminated hundreds more and whole programs with minimal input from faculty. As much as the firings themselves, which flaunt the illusion of shared governance, I took note of the statement the administration made to the student newspaper. 
These actions serve as real-world lessons in business and economics. It is perhaps the most bold-faced iteration of what I think is a common refrain coming from administrators, boards of trustees, and certainly the hydra-headed mollusk of EdTech and private equity whom they serve. Students are too soft, too kind-hearted, too idealistic, too entitled. They side with their unionized instructors who demand living wages. They demand divestment from fossil fuels in the name of climate change. They fill the streets calling for ceasefires. They need less history and more real-world lessons. Make no mistake, the curriculum is cruelty. Sustaining the neoliberal order, which has reigned from the 1970s forward, relies upon convincing a large proportion of the electorate that cruelty is normal and politically expedient. Cruelty is, in fact, the very height of rationality. Within the epistemology of neoliberalism, an epistemology for which we can thank the Chicago School disproportionately, cruelty is intelligence itself. Those who best acclimate themselves to it, who develop the most tolerance for witnessing the suffering of others and the greatest capacity to exact that suffering for profit, they are the masters of the universe, or as Twain put it, the blessings of civilization trust. The great success of the Chicago School of Economics was convincing the American public who had enjoyed three decades of unprecedented prosperity under Keynesianism, that an upward redistribution of wealth would benefit everybody, that the social safety nets, financial regulations, and consumer protections which were producing prosperity were unfair, that the boogeymen should not be the segregationist senators and financiers, but welfare queens and labor unions. As Phil Morawski details in Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste, untold millions were poured into sustaining the Chicago economics mythology following the 2008 crash. But the children of crisis are the first to say when the emperor has no clothes. The project of teaching how it's kind to be cruel must begin anew, and it is in Morgantown. In the midst of trying to close that $45 million budget gap created by Gordon G.'s Ponzi austerity regime, the West Virginia administration still found $20 million to match Ken Kendrick's gift and found the Kendrick Center for an Ethical Economy. The Kendricks are members of the libertarian donor class, one of whom sits on the board of the Goldwater Institute which aggressively advocates against diversity, equity, and inclusion, and for the implementation of a required U.S. history curriculum based on founding principles and Western civilization. What I mean to say, in brief, is that whether or not you buy that the mission of public criticism may be to help Americans unlearn supremacy without falling into fascism, the educational project of the neoliberal university, already underway, is to make Generation Z relearn it.
Thus concludes Criticism Limited. The eighth season of the American Vandal Podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. For more about this episode and the finale trilogy, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash empire of criticism or subscribe to my substack at theamericanvandal.substack.com. The American Vandal will always be open access. But if you enjoy this podcast and you can afford it, please consider becoming a patron subscriber. All those proceeds go directly to me and make possible an ever-improving quality of production and hopefully, in time, some live podcasts as well. Thanks, foremost, to y'all. The response to this series has honestly been too much for me to process. Many messages have gone unanswered, I realize, and maybe now I'll have time to get to that inbox. But from the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening. Extra special thanks to Joe Locke and Circle Nine Records for donating Locke's spectacular album, Macrom, which has acted as soundtrack for this series. I feel like I've been living inside Joe's vibraphone the last four months, and yet I have not grown the least bit tired of these beautiful compositions. Thanks also to everybody who said yes, many of them when I only had the faintest notion of what it was I wanted to talk about. These conversations have sustained me throughout the year. With so much darkness on the horizon, I embraced by the brilliance and enthusiasm of our critical community. This is a golden age of good folks in the professoriate. Thanks to the Center for Mark Twain Studies, especially Director Joe Lamack, and to the Provost of Elmira College, Patricia Ireland. If all administrators were like them, this series would have been much more optimistic. And thanks to my parents, both lifelong educators and also both reliable listeners to this series. Nobody has given me more substantive and extensive feedback while it was unfolding than my dad, and to its great benefit. And finally, to my wife, Michelle. If you're listening on the day this releases, it's her birthday, and I'm at home celebrating it with her. Because this shit is done. this far, you've earned a hidden track. I've been trying to find a place for this piece of my conversation with Jeffrey Herlihy-Mara since we recorded it, but it never quite fit the narrative arc of any single episode, although it definitely pertains to the empire of criticism. I think about Twain and his relationship to Hemingway, and both lived among indigenous communities, not their whole lives. Hemingway, of course, moved on to Cuba, but 
in Hemingway's Michigan stories with McAdams and so on, which are celebrated as the American Adam out in the wilderness and all these things. And he thinks about himself in, in those stories about being a great writer and becoming all these things. And, and that those are also stories of dispossession, of stories of displacement, the story Indian camp, but the silent presence. And like we said about Driscoll's book, which I just wanted to, to mention that, that's a fabulous piece of, of scholarship that I think raises a lot of very important questions. And hopefully books like that can get on the, the national discussion because those are very relevant and very contemporary questions and, and dilemmas that are not being asked. And to link them to somebody like Twain, who's you know, just a, a formative voice, not necessarily in the imperial narrative. I think that Twain would probably agree with a lot of the, if not all of the anti-imperial discussion. One part of your scholarship has Hemingway at the center. For some listeners, that's going to seem a little bit counterintuitive, that Hemingway has been held up as one of these sort of iconic American writers, part of the big four of American modernism. And now one of the, the authors that is often decanonized. And I think the, the amount of Hemingway being taught in secondary and also higher education in the United States is much, much less than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. He seems in some ways antiquated to some readers. Why Hemingway for you? And also, like, how does Hemingway change when you view him as you do in essays like Hemingway's Cuban Spanish, right? How does Hemingway change when you look at him from the perspective of a Hispanic culture? Why Hemingway? I was a, a graduate student in Barcelona in La Universidad Pompeu Fabra, and I had a, a professor named Rafael Arguyol. In my first semester as a student there, I, I wrote an essay called El uso de distancia como recurso literario en la obra de Hemingway, or Hemingway's use of distance as a literary resource, just looking at, I was myself in a, in a displaced position. I, I, I spoke Spanish, but I, I didn't really speak Catalan that well, and, and I still don't, but I would like to speak Catalan more. But it's the, really in the cash of Catalan National University and thinking about how Hemingway has this pattern that all of his protagonists are abroad and they're all culturally situated in a way they're all bilingual when the novels begin. And this informs the, what, what happens in the novels and, and how their experiences develop and their relationship with the, their surroundings, the way that they use you know, food, language, dress, sports, and things as methods to orient themselves in, in difficult positions. And so the first part of my scholarship when I did on that part was really looking at the ways that cultural displacement and linguistic displacement impacts creativity and how we think, how we use words, and how those impact the human condition. So displacement as a human condition and foreignness as a human condition in migrant studies. And for, for a very specific reason, and my grandfather at that time was living in Aguadilla, aquí in Puerto Rico. And I don't know, my grandmother had died in 2000 and he had a roommate, a guy named Joe Pluto. And he was alone a lot. And it, it made me think a lot about Santiago, the protagonist of The Old Man of the Sea. And I have these letters that I exchanged with him at that time. And these letters I wrote to him saying that I was doing this paper about Hemingway. My grandfather went to the the library and got Hemingway books and, and started rereading them. And they didn't have them in English. So we read them in Spanish. And he said that it was different reading them in Spanish than it was in English. And at that time in my life, like that's what I wanted to think about. That's what I was interested in. I think that Hemingway has been appropriated by the right in a sense that's very strange because Hemingway was very much anti everything on the right. And, and in that essay, you quote many of his 
very powerful statements in favor of Castro and the Cuban Revolution. Yeah, and he he died before the, the revolution changed. But he, and, he, and he even in '54. So in so Hemingway, just a little bit of biography of Hemingway. So he lived outside Chicago in Oak Park and spent the summers in Michigan when he was growing up, and then spent some time in the, in the, the Great War and in World War One. Was injured, went back to the Midwest, spent some time in Canada eventually moved to Paris with his first wife and then came back to Toronto to his wife to give birth and then went back to Paris. And when he really started devoting himself to literature was when he went back to Paris. And at that time, he was spending a lot of time in, in Spain and traveling a lot. He was a correspondent for the Toronto Star. And then once his first marriage dissolved, he eventually moved back to the US. And there was a big question about where he was going to live. And the letters that he wrote at that time, he wanted to move to Mexico or to Cuba. And then it seems like he moved to the closest possible place, which was Key West. And Key West at that time was a Spanish-speaking island, as it still largely is now. And it was understood as one of the seats, as well as Tampa, of the Cuban nationalist movement, because outside of the Cuban exiles being there. And at that time, the, the mayors of Key West were, were Cuban and so on. And so he was moved to a Spanish-speaking island, effectively. And then after a few years there, he eventually relocated to Havana. But he was living in a Spanish-speaking environment from the early 30s until right up until his death in the 60s. And by the early 50s, he's in his letters, he's saying, Spanish is the only language I really know. He wrote in a famous letter to Faulkner. And he said, if I had been a Spanish speaker, I would have written in Spanish and I would have been a fine author. Spanish is language, do no Spanish is language, so a translingual pun there. And then he, when he receives the Nobel Prize, the night that he receives the Nobel Prize in October of 54, he refuses all the interviews with the U.S. press. And he does one interview with a Cuban reporter from the local news in which he says, I'm the first Cuban to receive this award. And he doesn't say anything about the U.S. or anything. He receives it as a Cuban. He says, soy el primer cubano sato a recibir este premio. And for me, those are really interesting kind of entrances into what was happening in his life and, and about what happens to people who are you know, in, immersed in other outside. Certainly, Havana is incredibly different from where he grew up, not only in weather and language, culture, and, and you can maintain the Hemingway, English speaking, people do that. Everyone has their own Hemingway. But I think that when you look at the different depths that are available in what he was saying, just pay attention to what he was saying. Think beyond the kind of the American narrative, what's outside of that. Hemingway is a very interesting person for doing that. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't a misogynistic, not a good father, a lot of different things that you can say that are very negative about Hemingway. And I agree. The way that criticism, especially in the popular realm, if you see a lot of something about Hemingway in the Atlantic or in the New York Times or something, it's, it's going to have the very traditional narrative, conservative narrative. But in that sense, he's a real target, a real easy target to use as an example. But I don't agree with that myself. I think there's a lot more kind of facets to what was happening in his life and in his literature, and especially his literature. I'm really excited for the next few letters, collections that are due to come out in the next couple of years through Penn State. And hopefully they will print the letters that he wrote in Spanish. I haven't seen any of them yet, but I, I hope that they, that they do. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Possibly the most important single statement in Twain's studies is by Hemingway. This <laughs> line that is quoted all the time, very anachronistically, that Huckleberry Finn is the origin of all American literature. And usually that part of the line is all that people use is a way of holding up Huckleberry Finn as the sort of great American novel and the thing from which we should extract the idea of a U.S. literary tradition. I think that section in Green Hills of Africa is interesting and influential beyond that line. 
one of the things that Hemingway or the character says as the paragraph moves on is that you have to stop reading when Huck says, all right, I'll go to hell. And thus lops off the final 10 chapters of the novel, incredibly important chapters of the novel, especially if you read it as I do as a kind of allegory for reconstruction, for the failure of reconstruction. And then that critical statement about the the weaknesses and strengths of Huckleberry Finn falls within a larger conversation, specifically looking from abroad back at the United States at a kind of American canon. He talks about J Henry James. He talks about Stephen Crane. So he's in the process of both erecting, but also criticizing a kind of canon. And he's doing so explicitly from the position of somebody in a foreign land, thinking about what it means to be American and also about what that cultural imperialism might mean to erect an American canon that's going to have global influence. Uh, yeah, I would just also, I would look at that in, in a sense of what Hemingway was trying to do in citing Twain and what Twain was trying to do. And if we look at the context of, of both of them in that time period, the notion of kind of an English language outside of kind of the British controlled empire, that was a very kind of a, a real, almost a site of insecurity until maybe the, maybe in the thirties. And so both of them, I think, understood themselves as unlinking themselves from that control and trying to use what I would say is the vernacular of the Midwest as a method, as a new voice, as a new voice to be institutionalized. And so I, I would understand them very much. And I do, in fact, understand both of them as, in that sense, as decolonial against kind of the British influence. And, and Hemingway is being very conscious of that and looking back in time and saying, who was really successful in doing that and bringing out taking a, a voice that was one that was really not supposed to be front and center in literature and who did that and how has that affected the way that I, like what I can write about. And I think that Hemingway was really citing Twain in, in, in a creative sense and saying that he did this and I'm going to continue that. And I think that it really has to do precisely with the, the voices in the vernacular and, and looking at the other people who were doing the similar things. And Hemingway just happened to focus on, on, on English because English, even though the one empire is, is coming, is, is it on top of another, on top of another. But I think it's not unlike what Cervantes did and what Shakespeare, instead of using the kind of the institutional elites perspectives, telling stories from other perspectives and, and putting those into print. And I think that's all, I think they're very much underneath both of their kind of corpus of what's corpus in Latin and plural corpi, as far as their arcs as scholars and as writers and as creators. I hadn't necessarily made that jump, but I think it's a kind of spectacular one to think about these two figures who are oftentimes held up as intrinsically American and also negatively held up as part of the creation of an American cultural imperialism were actually in their own times very actively, very consciously trying, as you said, to de-link from the British Empire and from British cultural imperialism. And certainly Twain is incredibly self-conscious about that. He, as much as he spends a lot of time in Britain, he has a lot of friends in Britain, he has a lot of admiration for aspects of British culture. He's very self-consciously trying to depart from it. Right? And one of the people that he takes aim at over and over again is Matthew Arnold. <laughs> I, I hadn't quite made the link that you make there, but I think it's a very compelling one that in making the kind of American canon that they are both very much a part of. And I think 
sometimes negatively. I've been writing a series of pieces called The Twain Doctrine that are about how Twain is deployed in the Cold War era in these really propagandistic ways. So he becomes very much a part of celebrating American capitalism, rationalizing American imperialism. But in his own time, he was actually doing a kind of inverse thing. Yeah, and I think Hemingway, I yeah, Hemingway is similar. If you, he has some really interesting letters where he talks about the British, actually some appear in his journalism from the 20s where he's in Switzerland and he sees, you can really appreciate the, the empire that the British have once you've seen them luge. 